Today, uh, we have someone who's no stranger to sanctuary. He is a good priest, a good friend, uh, someone who is now, again, no stranger to sanctuary at all. Some of you are here today just because you knew Father Preston Sharp was going to come. And so I'm so excited that he's here with us. Let's welcome him as Father Preston comes to speak to us today. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Good to see familiar faces and new faces. It is such a joy to mark the first Sunday of Advent with you today as we do begin a new year and this season of anticipation of Christ. Historically, during this time, we celebrate a few different things. So we celebrate in Mark uh, Christ's coming first advent. So we join with Israel and a weary world in anticipating the incarnation. We also anticipate Christ's second coming in the age to come. And then thirdly, we anticipate the ways in which Christ is present to us in our midst today. We say, come, Lord Jesus. Now, part of this recognizing, part of this anticipating that we do in this season is recognizing there are things in this life and in this world that are broken, that are out of order, that are not as they should be. And often what happens is as our culture approaches Advent, which you know many in the world don't call it Advent, it's called the Christmas season, right? But as we step into this season of Advent, usually what happens is, is any retaining of this story that we keep in our world, we're quick to rush to the stories of the nativity, of Mary and the manger and the stories of the shepherds and the magi and all the holy family. And of course, those stories are wonderful. But if you choose to come to this church or a church like this one, during this time, this next few weeks, you don't get to hear such stories quite yet. Rather, we get, over the next few weeks, prophecies about destruction. <laughs> we get John the Baptist coming out all scraggly and saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Christmas, of course, that's coming is truly a time of comfort and joy. But Advent doesn't begin with comfort and joy. As Fleming Rutledge says, Advent begins in the dark. We're in the dark today. In Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, there's this proclamation from the prophet of this good news about what will be, but it's sandwiched in the midst of all this bad news about what is. As Christians, we hold on to this great hope about the world, but we struggle between the what is and the what will be. This is where we live our lives. The world where we stand in and the world that we spend our time in seems so broken so broken. Isaiah says the authorities in Jerusalem have become corrupted. They're oppressing the poor and the vulnerable. And there's an answer to this sickness. There's an answer to this brokenness and it's Yahweh's judgment. That's the answer. Now, of course, when we think about judgment, judgment in the scriptural story is not punishment. It's not punitive. It's restoration. So we hear this declaration of promise in the prophet Isaiah that the proper administration will be established, order will come, and God's people will flourish once again. That is the hope from the prophet. 
It says God's teaching will come from the mountain and it will draw all nations to this teaching and to this mountain and it will inaugurate a reign of universal peace in the world. In fact, the prophet says nations who are constantly fighting with each other will see that they need a true authority, the authority of the one true God. They need true peace. Now, we often hear judgment as a bad word. We are afraid of it. We are freaked out by it. Some of that's appropriate. But the word judgment often carries a negative connotation to us. But in Hebrew, the word judgment just speaks to order. In the Old Testament, there were judges, and they ruled over a period of time in Israel, and they were there to restore the order. In fact, the word judgment also carries this idea of a blueprint, something that's written out as a design and an order for a building, it also carries the idea of a custom, something that's done over and over again because it brings order to our lives. That's the idea of judgment, putting things in order. God's judgment is bringing his divine order to the world, and because of that, judgment is good news. We need the world to be judged. All that is disordered in the world is being rightly ordered. So the calling in Isaiah is, come descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the, world, of the Lord. In other words, if there's going to be a day when Gentiles of all nations will come and stream to God's house, we should live that way now as God's people. God's people now ought to live in his light. It's been said that no season better summarizes the Christian life than the season of Advent. We live in between Christ's first coming and his second coming, in between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our God. In Romans 13, the apostle Paul urgently reminds the church to wake up, watch and wait for Jesus to be revealed. Christians affirm that because of Christ's resurrection, Because Jesus rose from the dead, the world is a completely different place. We live in a new world. We are citizens of a new country. A new day is dawned. A new sheriff is in town. You can pick your metaphor, any of those. They're all in the Bible, except the sheriff one. It's not there. I added that one. But most people we meet in this life have organized their lives according to the patterns of the old world. They are asleep to the new world. And we understand why. The new world is difficult to see. In Romans, Paul says, the night is gone, but the day is near or at hand. And we're to live as if it were day. Well, this is kind of confusing for Paul because with his metaphor, you want to go, okay, is it nighttime or is it daytime? What are you saying? We live in between night. It's one or the other. Is it nighttime or is it daytime? Well, the truth is Christians live on the cusp. The world lives on the cusp, on the brink of a new day. It's time to wake up, Paul says, to get dressed because we know that God's new day awaits us. But how do we do that? How do we live according to the new world, the new day and not the old one? Well, one of the ways, and the Advent season speaks to this, is we lean into God's judgment, which sounds terrible, right? And this is because we've often been taught to think of judgment as something purely bad. But judgment is necessary and an appropriate part of God's revealing God's self. 
Over the past few weeks, I won't ask for a show of hands, but many of us have likely made a trip or two to the doctor. (laughs) There's a lot going around right now, isn't there? We're living in a season where the germs are all stirred up. The flu is in the air, RSV, we still have COVID. There's lots of stuff doctors can't even identify. You just got something, right? And if you have kids in school or in daycare, this is a very prescient reality for you right now, right? It's likely that your kids have been exposed to all kinds of things. I think it was Father Paul that I heard say, we give half of our income to the daycare and in exchange, we get a different virus every other week, right? (laughs) In fact, the reason my my family's not here today is my little girls both woke up kind of sick last night. And so uh, we're all kind of facing this, but there's nothing like the experience of taking a young child to the doctor. They just don't quite understand that for the doctor to help them feel better, they have to cooperate with the doctor. It doesn't compute. It doesn't seem to make sense. I remember one time when my oldest was three years old, she didn't want the doctor anywhere near her, so she hid every time the doctor came in the room. Well, that doesn't do anything for you, right? If a person goes to the doctor and desires for the doctor's work to be healing and helpful, it's necessary to open oneself up to the doctor for them to look at you and judge what is wrong with you. And sometimes this is weird and invasive. Sometimes the nurse or physician looks in your ears and nose and throat. It's not comfortable things. Has anyone had a strep test over the past couple weeks? It's no fun. But only something that is revealed can be healed. Judgment is the process of bringing something to light so that it can be dealt with and healed. Judgment is not punishment. It is examination for healing. Now, judgment ought to freak us out a little bit. When a person goes to the doctor, there's always a concern you may be sicker than you think you are, that there's something kind of wrong, broken, sick about us. That fear is appropriate. It keeps us vigilant. It keeps us aware. And then we have other fears we experience as well. We might be afraid that our doctor is not as knowledgeable as they need to be. There also may be a fear that the doctor will not care in a compassionate way. Last week, our oldest daughter was tested for strep throat, and she also had to receive vaccine shots in the same appointment. We had to remind her that the doctors are trying to help her, not hurt her, even though it made absolutely no sense to her in the present moment when they're jabbing a needle in her arm and shoving a stick down her throat. Part of leaning into God's judgment is reminding ourselves that our physician is the great physician who's not only knowledgeable, understanding every part of our condition, but is the one who walks through it with us, who has compassion for us and cares for us. This is also so important why we remind ourselves of who God is and we remind ourselves of our baptismal identity, of who we are in him. This is why we immerse ourselves in spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting and gathering Sunday after Sunday, singing songs of redemption and hope and salvation, reciting the creed, coming to the table, blending our lives together in community and confessing our sins because we actively and daily choose to remind ourselves of who God is and who we are in him, that he has our good in mind. It is the daily walk of learning to trust God. 
And this is not always fun. It's the narrow road, but it's the best way. We run from darkness and to light. Paul in that Romans 13 I was talking about has some very specific things that he tells God's people to turn away from. Gets really specific and they're things related to impaired judgment, things that happen in the dark. So he mentions drunkenness, sexual immorality, dissension, and jealousy. People turn to drunkenness when they feel unloved or the need to escape. And drunkenness often leads to abuse and disrespect towards others. To know love is to put that away. Sexual immorality is not centered on love, but lust. Dissension and jealousy are not oriented towards love, but war. If we are citizens towards a new world, we don't need to fight with one another. These are things that take place in the darkness, Paul says, but the new day, the light has dawned. So we put away those things that are not rooted in love or light. And then Paul says something amazing. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the language of clothing yourself. We're to put on the clothes of a new day. If we know that a new day is almost here or is here, we likely don't wake up and put on our pajamas. No, it's time to get dressed for the day. God loves us so much, he's delivered us. And now we're called to live as a delivered people, to run from slavery and run towards God's best for us. We don't know the hour of Christ's return and neither did Paul. That's the point. But the point, he says, is that we must awaken to this new reality to become citizens of the new world as we await it in fullness. Our gospel reading that, Father Paul read a minute ago is interesting, isn't it? Uh, you probably know by now, if you've been around here or churches like ours, we don't get to pick the scripture verses that we preach on. So this isn't the guest speaker who came in and said, I wanna preach on the thief in the night this morning. No. In fact, depending on your church background, our gospel reading may have startled you a bit or set off some familiar synapses in your brain. If you grew up in evangelicalism, you might have strong feelings when you hear things like, one is taken, the other is left. If you came to faith during the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s, you may have a Larry Norman song going on in your head, I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one's left standing still. There's no time to change your mind, the sun has come and you've been left behind. Remember films like A Thief in the Night? From the, I don't remember it personally, but I've, I've seen it before, um, which shaped a lot of our Christian imaginations. I remember when I first saw that film, the thing that captured me is somebody shaving and then all of a sudden they're gone and their razor is in the, in the sink or somebody's driving and all of a sudden the, nobody's in the car. These kind of things shaped us. One of the things we've been taught in certain strands of evangelicalism is that the world is gonna get really, 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 really bad. And the only Christian hope is to escape it, to get away from the world. That if we get our heart right, if we're ready, we will be taken and we will not be left behind. Well, the problem with this interpretation is it, it doesn't seem to fit the larger Christian story. The Christian story is not about things getting really, really, really bad and some people escaping. It's about a God who desires to heal and restore a broken world. The story of scripture is not about escape, 
but about healing. Likewise, this gospel reading today is not about escape. Jesus is not saying, get your heart right so you can disappear and not be left in evil days. If we look at the context even, here's what Jesus says. He says, we could compare this, what should we compare to the coming of the son of man? He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. So who is taken away in the Noah story? Think about that for a minute. Everyone except Noah and his family. They are spared. Everyone else is taken away by the flood. So being taken away in the Noah story is not a good thing. Noah and his family are saved because they're the ones who are left behind. What? (laughs) What? Jesus says there'll be a day when two men are in a field. One will be swept away, the other left. He says swept away, notice that. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Again, if we relate this to the Noah story, this passage is about the idea you do not want to be taken. <laughs> Those who are left behind are going, Phew. Christians boldly affirm the second coming of Christ. We affirm this, Christ will come again. We say it every Sunday. He will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. We confess it in the creeds. It is our Christian hope. And we can definitely read Jesus's words today as a foreshadowing of the end things. But we need to remember, always remember the trajectory of the Christian story is about the God who comes to heal and restore, not about an evacuation plan. The end of the passage says, if the owner of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let the house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So what is Jesus referring to here? Well, this passage is part of a larger narrative called the Olivet Discourse. And it's, it's a really interesting set of passages and Christians have wondered throughout history, is Jesus talking about stuff that's gonna happen soon for the disciples? Is he talking about something that's gonna happen at the end? What is he referring to here? And many Christians still disagree on this today. Many, including the, some of the early church fathers suggest Jesus is telling his disciples they need to prepare for their coming death, which may happen soon. Some have suggested that this portion of the Olivet Discourse refers to the second coming of Jesus. So it does refer to that day in the age to come that we all hope for and long for. But others have suggested that Jesus is preparing the disciples for a large scale cataclysmic event that will happen within a generation of his speaking. It's likely that all of them are true in some way. In 70 AD, which was about a generation after Jesus spoke, tensions between Rome and Judea reached a climax. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and Jerusalem was ransacked. So for us, we look at that and we go, okay, if he's talking about that big event, that big cataclysmic event of the temple being destroyed, what does that have to do with us? Well, the temple was more than just a religious artifact. It was everything for the Jewish people. 
It was the center of faith and worship and society. God's people held on to the reality that this is where God lives. This is how we're close to God is by being near to the temple. So when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, it sent shockwaves through the society. It would cause people to doubt God's faithfulness because his house, the place where his presence lives, is gone. What does that even mean anymore? It would feel like the end of the world. Jesus says to his disciples, nobody knows when this thing exactly is going to happen, just that it will be within a generation. But we know, he says, life will go on as normal even up to the last minute. So this cataclysmic event would divide people. Work colleagues are split apart. Families are split apart. Why? Because an invading army is coming. The invading forces, when they sweep through the village, would take some to their deaths and some would remain untouched. One is taken, the other is left. Okay, still, we read this great, great part of history. What does that have to do with us? The children of Israel trusted in the temple and it was right for them to do so. The temple was a good thing, a signpost of God's presence. And yet when God stepped into our world in the person of Jesus Christ, he was revealed as the new temple, the new place where heaven and earth meet. And it tells us in the scripture that many people couldn't see him for who he was. John 1, 11, he came to that with what's his own and his own did not receive him. He didn't fit with the temple system that they had grasped onto. And I wanna suggest that this phenomenon of clinging on to something and not able to see Jesus in the midst of it is not unique to the first century. We too cling to our own structures and systems. There are moments in life where all of the things in our life, even the good things are revealed as being empty at worst or not ultimate at best. The problem with idolizing money is it can be gone in an instant. We lose our job, the economy tanks, or we face an obstacle. The problem with idolizing the approval of others is that it's just fleeting. You can't, in fact, if we spend our whole lives just wondering if everybody else approves of us, we'll never do anything significant in this life because we're just looking at everybody else around us. Those who live by their own reputation often find that that's fleeting. The problem with putting your trust in politics is all politics is messy. No political party or movement is truly ethically good. Many of us have experienced a kind of shaking in our lives at some point, sometimes from dramatic events, sometimes just from everyday experiences. We experience loss and change. And in those moments, we're reminded that those things are not final, even the good things, that most things in this world do not last. Some of you may be in a stage where you're getting your mind around what it means to have an empty nest for the first time. So much of that stage of life, I understand, is really fun. More time, more money, new things that you can do. But there's also an element that's ident identity redefining. I'm not needed in the same way anymore. What does life look like now? The same can be true of new parents. Many of us, when we first become parents, we wanna be the perfect parents. 
We want to get everything right. We read all the books. We do everything we think the right way. And then our kid makes some choices that freak us out. Maybe it has nothing to do with our parenting at all. But what if we aren't the perfect parent we thought we were? How does that shift our identity? Perhaps you're here and maybe you just started college. and In high school, you were great at everything. Top of your class, you had high confidence, but now you feel like a small fish in a big pond. You feel awkward and dumb and insignificant. Some of you did really great in college and then you set out to get a job and it's not what you expected it would be. Some of us have recently lost someone close to us. This past Friday, my dad and I led a memorial service for my great aunt who lived an inspiring life of faith. And in those moments, grief is right on the surface. Sometimes grief is not because someone has died. Sometimes it's because someone has left or they've proven to be untrustworthy. Well, all of this sounds like really bad news, doesn't it? (laughs) Imagine how the temple being destroyed was for God's people, Israel, that everything feels gone, everything feels shaken, everything we've put our hope in, everything we've defined ourselves by is gone. In fact, one definition of sin is merely misplaced trust, where we define ourselves and the world by this one thing, even a good thing. But none of those examples are bad. Good reputation is great. Friends and family members who you can count on are great. Success in business is wonderful. The temple was a good thing, a really good thing. But even the best things in life can block us from seeing Christ if they have our ultimate trust. Do these things define who we are so much that we are unable to see Christ and who we are in him? Well, the beautiful thing about Jesus is that when we find our identity in him, everything else comes in proper perspective. I seek a good reputation, not because I need it somehow, but because I want to reflect Christ in my actions. My relationships become an overflow of my relationship with Jesus. My success is only so that I can be a redemptive force for good in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. Advent invites us into the time between the times. We live in between the reality of Christ's first coming, his life and death and resurrection and ascension, and his second coming, when we see the world in fullness restored. The calling of the gospel this week and our other readings is to live into the light, to live as if the new day of God's kingdom has dawned. We as Christians are citizens of a new world, even when we do not yet see it. We are called to lay down the swords of conflict as we seek them to be transformed into that which produces good in the world. We're called to wake up for salvation is at hand. The day is almost here. If a new day has dawned, God's people are to live differently. That means we're to put away the things of darkness, the things that only lead to emptiness and destruction, and we're to wear not our pajamas, but the clothes of the new day by clothing ourselves with Christ. Yet we are so often resistant to the light, and this is what Advent calls out of us. Perhaps we're afraid of God's judgment because we don't know his character. Perhaps we merely fear the discomfort associated with opening ourselves up to the light. 
Or perhaps we're not convinced that the new day is here or that it wouldn't be better if we just stayed asleep, living our lives by the way of the old world. During Advent, our allegiances are challenged. Reputation, success, money, power, political ideology will all fail us. Yet there is one who will remain true. When we see those things which have our final ultimate trust crumble, it will feel like the end of the world. But there is one who is with us all the way through, showing us who he truly is and loving us fully. Our calling, keep watch, be ready. Everything else will fade, but even in their failing, the son of man will be shown true. Amen.